and welcome to the latest edition of Nursing Matters with me, Rachel Hollis. I'm the chair of the Royal College of Nursing Professional Nursing Committee. I'm a children's cancer nurse and I live in North Yorkshire. Welcome first to my co-host, joining us for the first time, Tim Grace, who's the Northern Region member of the RCN's Professional Nursing Committee. Hello, Tim. Hello, Rachel. Tim, tell us just a little bit about your role and, and where you work. So I'm a mental health nurse by background and I work as a psychological therapist in the community mental health team in County Durham in the northeast of England where I live. So we're relatively near neighbours, aren't we, Tim, with the we are. Yorkshire and, and County Durham. So, And we were together last week when the RCN held its first in-person congress since 2019 in Glasgow, which was unusually hot and sunny when we arrived, although it was raining by the time we, we left. What did you take away from Congress, Tim, and any personal highlights for you? Well, being able to attend Congress in person and meeting so many passionate people about nursing face-to-face for the first time since 2019 was, was one highlight. But if I were to name a specific highlight of Congress 22, it has to be that of overseas nurses. We had many overseas nurses participating and providing valuable contributions to the Congress debates. I also attended one particular fringe event that was about overseas nursing and I was moved by the experiences of the overseas nurses there. So that was that was my highlight. Thank you. And one of the reasons really for our episode this week, because in this week's episode of Nursing Matters, we're going to be taking another look at that nursing workforce crisis that we've talked about in, in a number of previous episodes. But we're looking at it through a different lens. We know that the UK has always relied heavily on recruiting overseas nurses to join our workforce. And we've spoken before of the urgent need to increase our domestic supply. And in the context of a global shortage of nurses, how do we manage international recruitment and how do we support overseas nurses when they arrive in the UK and recognise the knowledge and skills they bring with them? Joining us to consider these issues are two special guests. So welcome first to Felicia Kwaku. Welcome, Felicia. Good afternoon, everybody. And um, it's a privilege to be here. Thank you. And Felicia, you're the Assistant Director of Nursing at King's College Hospital, Chair of the Chief Nursing Officers BME Strategic Advisory Group in England, as well as being a member of the RCN's International Committee. So bringing a really important perspective to our episode today. Felicia, I wondered if to start with, you could just tell us a little bit about your own nursing journey, what brought you in? nursing and where your career has taken you? Wow, where do I start, Rachel? (laughs) I was quite sickly as a child. I remember always being taken to the hospital in the middle of the night, feeling very safe. And that's where my passion, I think, for nursing kind of took flight. And from there, I tailored my career to getting into nursing school. I trained at the Middlesex Hospital, which was part of UCLH. And I worked my way through the ranks. So I'm a cardiac intensive care nurse by background. And I did that for 19 years. And I've had other positions, for example, a lecturer practitioner. I've been a clinical teacher. And I have worked up the leadership tiers. So I've been a director of nursing on two occasions in the private sector and the independent sector. And I'm currently at King's College Hospital But it's important for me to also not just focus on what happens within my current job, but to make sure that I have other interests. 
And my other interests are I'm the director of nurse and midwifery education training at the Nigerian Nurses Charitable Association UK. You've mentioned my national roles. And I'm on several steering groups that discuss international recruitment, Black minority ethnic matters and the workforce. Um, so, so, you know, I carry many hats, but I'm passionate about equality and diversity, and in particular, the Black minority ethnic uh, minority nursing and midwifery workforce. Thank you, Felicia. And these are all some of the themes that we'll, we'll pick up in, in these, this episode of Nursing Matters. So great to have you with us. So Charlotte Collins is recruitment and retention nurse at Princess Alexandra Hospital in Harlow, Essex, as well as being on the RCN Eastern Board. Hello, Charlotte, and welcome to Nursing Matters. Hi, everybody, and thank you so much for inviting me here today. Charlotte, you were also at RCN Congress last week. Have you attended Congress before? No, this was my first ever time at Congress. Um, And I felt that I was up and about... I, I certainly um, made up for my time for not being there before, let's put it that way. So what did you enjoy most about this year's event? I really enjoyed the passion and the vibrancy in the room. I've had a fantastic time with just networking, meeting like-minded individuals and just some incredibly passionate colleagues who share the same views and values as myself. And I've I've thoroughly enjoyed just meeting new colleagues who I can now call friends, actually. Felicia, we know from the State of the World's Nursing Report that there's a worldwide and growing shortage of of nurses and and midwives. And at the RCN Congress last week, Professor James Buchan showed that the UK is one of the countries with the greatest reliance on nurses who trained overseas Yes, we're facing a continuing crisis in the UK across all sectors. Is it right that we continue to recruit nurses from countries facing similar shortages or worse than those in our own country? So the the, the straightforward answer, Rachel, would be no. That would be the straightforward uh, response. But it's it's it may be a bit more complex than that. So we need to recognise that we've always had a history of people travelling from country to country, from countries of low and middle income countries to Western countries where Mm. the incomes, outlook on life, the um, economic, if you like, opportunities are much, much better in some of these countries. So we've always had a history of that. And we've had the Commonwealth, um, which is our our great link here. Mm. So, so we can't stop people moving and traveling. We can't stop our nurses and midwives moving and traveling. So they will always, they, you know, there will always be a section of, of the global uh, workforce that will do that. The other side of the, the coin then is around international recruitment. So there is some, some, some elements of discussion here. We know that the target is to recruit 50,000 more nurses into the national health system. We know that training places in the United Kingdom are much lower compared to the States, and I think in Australia as well. So there is the question around how proactive is our domestic recruitment of nurses and midwives? What are we doing around training places? We know pay is a particular issue that attracts and retains nurses and midwives. So there is, there is, there is further work, and I know there is work at hand around domestic recruitment. Mm. 
Then there is the question around international uh, recruitment in itself. So we know that from the Philippines and India, we know that they, they have an abundance of nurses uh, and midwives. And we know that there are insufficient places and jobs and salaries for some of for a number of those. And we know that for some of those countries, in terms of career opportunities right at the beginning, when individuals are making their career choices, nursing is one of the, the key um, options for um, a, a career. So we know countries like the, the two I've mentioned, they have an overpopulation, over number of nurses. Mm-hmm. What I'm starting to see now is more nurses that are coming from Nigeria and um, from Ghana. And we know also that European nurses have have significantly decreased their numbers since following Brexit. Mm -hmm. So we have to be careful when we are recruiting. We have to be cognizant that we shouldn't be plundering We've got the State of the uh, World's Nursing Report. We've also got the Sustain and Retain report Mm -hmm. that came out with the um, International Council of Nurses collaboration that came out, I think, in March. So, you know, ethical recruitment is important. Of course, I'm going to say that you wouldn't go to countries and recruit from countries that absolutely um, have a very poor nursing nursing midwifery workforce. Why would you do that? It seems very contraindicated. So whatever we do do, I think it's important that in this country, we make sure that there's really robust domestic training, that the pay is right, and that when we are going um, to other countries, we go to those other countries because we know that there is a surplus and that we do that ethically so that we don't plunder those countries. So I think there's two sides of the, uh, there's two sides of the coin. And I think that, that, tension there between sort of recruitment and the freedom to travel to seek employment out of your own country it makes it challenging to navigate I think for those who are looking to recruit to a workforce that is absolutely we need to grow that domestic supply but that's going to take time isn't it it is going to take time but investment yeah but but how how sustainable is it then Mm. to continue on this pathway yeah at some point on the line, those numbers may significantly reduce um, in terms of those host countries that are supplying the United Kingdom workforce. And for me, there's also the question about when we do bring um, international nurses and midwives are now um, on the list and community nurses are now on the list for international recruitment, Mm. how do we care for them? You know, what's their career progression once they're here? So we know that in some areas, that can work well, but we know for a large portion of those nurses and midwives coming over, their experience is very, very varied. You know, we have staff coming over internationally that have masters, that have, they're running a nursing and healthcare institutions, and we put them at a band three while they're waiting for their OSCEs, and we keep them at a band five, and they stay at a band five for many, many years. So we talk about ethical recruitment, and then the, what about ethical practice when those nurses and midwives are here in, you, in the United Kingdom? A resolution was submitted to Congress focused on the need to lobby employers to formulate HR policies for the ethical overseas recruitment of nursing staff with transparent terms and conditions of employment. This was submitted by the RCN Outer Northwest London branch and was passed. 
which means it will now be taken forward as a priority piece of work for the RCN. Here's RCN member Ziba Arif, who took to the stage to introduce the resolution to Congress. Foreign recruitment should be systematic, transparent and dignified in making overseas nurses employment free from ex exploitation. So Charlotte, you, you spoke in, the, in this debate. What were the key issues that you shared with Congress? So yes, I did speak up on the ethical recruitment because I completely echo everything that Felicia has just said about this. She articulated it beautifully. We are over recruiting in a, a few countries and I think, you know, a lot of hospital trusts, they are over reliant and trusting on their agencies to produce nurses and they will not challenge where some of these pipelines of nurses necessarily come from. So um, India and the Philippines being an, an example of an area that is quite heavily relied upon for um, international recruitment. But when we consider that 66% of registrants came from India and the Philippines out of our internationally educated nurses, that to me is quite an alarming figure. And as much as there is potential um, sustainability in the sense that they have a lot of nurses there that are trained that perhaps can't necessarily work within their own home countries, at what point does that change? It's not really clear how long we can continue with that. And to me, that doesn't seem ethical and it doesn't seem sustainable. We should broaden our search because by including other countries that are not red list countries in this search for sustainable recruitment, we will have much richer diversity and experience that can be brought to UK practice to help shape our own practices and visions. I completely agree with the sentiment that Felicia has said that they've made the effort to apply to you and you know they want a, either potential career growth, they want to settle their family in a different country, it might have been their ambition since childhood that they would work in a different country as a nurse, I, I don't know. And who am I to say that I shouldn't accept their application because they're on the red list? But in equal parts, should I be accepting their application because they are on the red list? And am I depriving their own country of a much needed and valued nurse? It's an incredibly complex and multifaceted argument. And I'm not entirely sure where the right answers lay in this. It's going to take a lot of work to come up with how we tackle this both ethically and sustainably and that we're not using nurses from red list countries and we're not using our international nurses generally to just fuel our own agenda because we're so desperate for 50,000 nurses that we don't care where they come from and who they are. Charlotte, you've mentioned a couple of times sort of red list just in kept because there may be listeners who don't know what that you know what that red list is in terms of recruitment. Do you want to just can you just briefly explain what the idea behind having red lists in terms of recruitment is? Yes, so um, the World Health Organization, they have a list of countries um, which are identified as what we call red list. Um, so we've got a green list, an amber list and a red list. So any country that is on the red list, that's an area that's been identified or a nation that's been identified as having poor healthcare infrastructure and not enough nurses to meet the healthcare needs of their own country. 
So for us, taking nurses from a vulnerable healthcare infrastructure could really cause detrimental damage to what is already a lower income country. Felicia, I know that, as I mentioned, you sit on the International Committee of the RCN and that's I know that the committee is looking at policies on ethical recruitment. So is there a need for us to strengthen our position on that? And That's an interesting challenge because although we cannot actively recruit from Nigeria, these nurses are making their way on their own. And so, so, so there's an ethical question then that how, where, do, where do we stand ethically uh, when we are blocking uh, people that make their way independently to this country from a red country? And do we understand some of the reasons why they are coming? So we, we met with uh, the Nigerian Nurses Association. We, we are very cognizant of the increasing numbers. And we met with a number of nurses in Devon um, in March. And one of the key things for them is, so, so it's interesting why what some of their reasons for coming over one of the reasons is economics. So a Nigerian nurse can have a salary of between 30 and 70 pounds a month. Mm. When they come to um, the United Kingdom, their salary may be 1,500 to 2,000 pounds a month. So that's, there's an economic drive and an economic reason. And one of the, the second reason is because they're part of the Commonwealth, uh, some of the nurses have, have mentioned around about helping the Commonwealth or their host country uh, with their with the healthcare provision. Some of them talk about you know poor access to um, nurse uh, to education and training. They want career aspirations. They want to bring their families here as well, and many do bring their families. So we need to we need to we need to be cognizant that there are there are real reasons why a number of these nurses are starting. Um, to come over to the United Kingdom. And they are aware very keenly that there is a big nursing deficit here in the West and they can economically benefit from the coming to the West despite, and so they are very cognizant about the health uh, problems and the health economy within their uh, countries of origin, but economics drives a lot of uh, want and, uh, and and it drives the need for the nurses to to want to move from country A to country B. They come for career progression. They come for stability uh, financially to be able to send money back home to bring their families here and start a whole new life and that's incredibly commendable you know for me they've put the effort in to approach me for employment. I will put the effort in to interview them if they meet my criteria. And that's something that I do personally, because I feel that that's the right thing to do. Because for me to refuse to interview them when they meet my criteria otherwise, that borders on some serious ethical issues to me, because am I refusing them because of their nationality? And to me, that's not right. There are some schemes, the work and similar, it's called work and return, that, that, that have taken place uh, between the United Kingdom and, for example, the Caribbean countries. So there have been some work and returns where people come, they're educated uh, from an international point of view, and then they go back to their countries of origin. But the issue is a bit wider and larger than that, and that's this global work, workforce issue. And it's the global perspective of the nursing workforce about how 
we position ourselves within the global healthcare landscape, how we um, lobby those countries from a global perspective to really ensure that they uh, value the role of the nurse and the midwife in every single country, how we have uh, global policies that make sure that there are um, nursing officers within each country, that there's a strategy and policy that um, encourages and supports education and training. If, if that's not right, if that structure is not robust, if the training, the pay structure, the um, respect for the role, the integration of the role within society, if that is not embedded, if the role is not recognised, then we it's going to be very difficult to stop nurses coming over even at the risk of of reducing the nursing and workforce in in low and middle income countries. It's it's a bigger global discussion and argument than just saying, uh, you know, continue to accept nurses and midwives from red countries. They are coming because their need is not being fulfilled. Mm. Some of the issues around education and, and training programs, the status of the nurse globally, it's a bigger discussion, it's a bigger issue. And I guess that's, you know, one of the reasons that um, it's brilliant that the RCN has now rejoined the International Council of Nursing. You you referred to the report earlier this year, the report really looking at, at that international picture of, of nursing and where we are building on. I think if the RCN can really begin to play a role back in that international arena or continue to play a strong role in that international arena to address some of those more those structural and long-standing issues. I absolutely agree, Rachel. And being on the International Committee mm. gives, gives me an opportunity to work with the committee to do that. I think the RCN can play a really absolutely fundamental uh, part. We have over 141,000 internationally educated nurses on the register. That's mm. if of the United yeah. Kingdom workforce mm. is absolutely significant. So there is a, a position of how those internationally educated nurses, how we amplify their voice around what's really what really matters, what the salient issues are, how do they, how do we share that global connection? How are they, how are they treated here? What's the career progression? And then how do we kind of build that st- strategy in so that you know, we, that we can return. So that some of those nurses may want to return in mm. I don't know, two, five, six years and give back to their, give back to their countries. But I think the RCN has a real, has a real opportunity here to strengthen that global discussion. Congress last week had the personal experience of nurses who's co- who've come from other countries to work in, health um, and social care in the UK. And one member, Anne-Marie Fredericks-Fraser, told Congress that overseas nurses must be directly involved in the development of employment policies. It is evident that our nursing profession continues to suffer when our voices are not heard and decisions are made that impact us. Therefore, Congress, let us ask employers that their decisions be influenced by active representation from overseas nurses with lived experience of what it means to be seen as an employee and often forgotten as a person. Charlotte, you proposed a Congress resolution requesting a strategy for the recognition of the skills of and the development needs of overseas nurses coming to the work in the UK and how they might be better supported. 
What were the um, points that you really wanted to bring to the, the floor of Congress? We know that this is an incredibly multifaceted issue for our international nurses because define recognition. It's not as simple as one thing. It's, there's lots of things that encompass the term recognition. And we've already acknowledged that about a fifth of our workforce, our NMC registrants, are international nurses. And that's a huge number. And we've identified that they'll come here as pre-registered nurses who, depending where they work, will receive band three or band four salary until they obtain their PIN. I don't personally know of any personal story, so I could be wrong on this. People go straight to band five. And I don't understand that because we've already identified that some of them come with years of experience and not just clinical experience, but our leadership, our management experience, um, running services, creating services, so much that we can learn and grow from ourselves as individuals. I've seen so many international nurses say to me, you know, why am I being paid at the bottom of band five? And I've never had an answer for that. And so that's why it's really important for me to talk about pay on this, because tell me what is the difference between two nurses that have 10 years of experience, but one got that experience in the UK and one got that abroad? You know, if individuals have been able to catheterize, cannulate or do other advanced practical skills as uh, professionals, why are they not able to utilize that skills here without having to go back to university or to go and do a study day or a specific course, etc.? Part of the proposition that I put forward was to have some form of skills, passport or workbook. My background is an intensive care nurse as well. So for me, I've got what we call our national step competencies. Um, and I can take that to any employer in the UK and say, I've, I've got my step one, two, three and four competency book. And theoretically, that should be accepted and I should be able to lead that intensive care unit. So if that can be done for intensive care and perhaps other speciality areas, why aren't we looking at this as a way forward to sort of have a passport for all nurses, um, but particularly so that we can really get the recognition that these international nurses deserve because they bring such valuable skills, insight and knowledge. And without that, we would crumble as a healthcare system. So Charlotte, your resolution was passed. How does that make you feel? Well, um, anyone that saw me come off that stage will tell you exactly how I felt. I cried. <laughs> it made me so emotional, um, even now thinking about it. But um, I was so proud uh, because this is something that I've been passionate about for years. As the, the white British UK educated nurse, that might not sound authentic, but from the bottom of my heart, it, it means the world to me because I know so many fantastic international nurses who go above and beyond every day and they call it their duty and that this is their calling. And as much as they're passionate about nursing, some of them still have that fear to bring their voice into that. This should have happened years ago. And I'm so glad that we're now in a position where we can really have a meaningful impact on our international colleagues coming to join us.
And Charlotte, you also hosted a fringe event which focused on the journey of the internationally educated nurse. What did you want to achieve through the event? It was mainly awareness. You know, if you haven't walked the shoes of an international nurse or you have as heavy involvement as perhaps myself and some of um, our colleagues in recruitment and international nurse education, I don't think people understand how difficult it is and, you know, what's going through the, the mind of these individuals and why they decide to do this. And I don't think they realise about the constraints. So one big thing which seems to surprise people is that the restrictions on tier two visas, that international nurses on a tier two visa, you, you can't access public funds and resources, which means you can't get child benefit. You can't get 33 hours of childcare. You can't get social housing. So they don't realise the added financial pressure to be an international nurse here because we take for granted what we already have as UK residents. I don't think people understand the gruelling tasks involved with becoming a registered nurse in the UK. So we have to sit the test of competence. But before you can do that test of competence, if English is not your native language, you need to complete the English language test. And then with that test of competence, again, you have to do a two-part exam. So part one is our computer-based test, and it's a series of multiple choice questions. Um, and again, most people will pass it on the first attempt, but that still takes a lot of preparation and revision and time to do. And the part two is what we can only complete in the UK, and that's the OSCE. Um, and that's your Objective Structured Clinical Examinations. And that's a practical exam. So categorically, we have to involve our international colleagues in how we support international staff arriving to work in our organisations. You know, we need to hear their experiences. We need to learn from it and we need to understand beyond learning. What are we going to do to ensure we get positive change? Thank you, um, Charlotte, for that comprehensive overview. Just some additional um, points. One of the key things for me is that, you know, we're in the business of caring and there's clear evidence that if the workforce is not nurtured, well cared for, um, recognised, valued, rewarded, and that has a direct impact on patient experience, quality and safety. So Charlotte's saying about international nurses, if you ask a diaspora, we're not very, we don't really like that terminology. We, we like diaspora. So, you know, we, we intertwine between the two terminologies. Mm. But just to say that whole issue around lack of recognition um, for nurses from other, other countries outside of the, the EU and England, it's a real issue of morale and it's very demoralising for them. So we can't underestimate this issue of a lack of recognition of skills, prior skills and experience. It's a real bone of contention. And how do you marry that with a newly qualified nurse who gets a band five um, with no post-registration experience with a nurse from um, an international nurse that, that may come with 10, 20 years of experience and put on the same salary banding. If you, if you just say it like that, it makes no sense at all. And I understand about cultural adaptation. I understand there might be some language barriers, but that all can be taught um, and you can develop competency. So those things need to be taken in into consideration. 
It's the absolute responsibility of employers to, in, to manage their talent. And there probably needs to be a national steer uh, around this, not just from NHS England and NHS Improvement, but also outside, because we know that international nurses span the health and social care landscape. So, so we do need a steer. And the RCN can be pivotal once again in, in steering the direction of travel there. There are fast-track programmes. I know Charlotte alluded to it. There are established fast-track programmes, but they're very small and variable. And it would be really good to model and replicate those uh, successful fast-track programmes across the country. Really important. And then there's also the issue of the many international nurses that are here that are working as healthcare support workers, especially within health and social care, there, there are hundreds, up to thousands of those nurses that either can't pass the OSCE, don't have the infrastructure and support to help them to, to overcome those barriers. And they are, they're just, their skills are just being, you know, not fully utilised. One of my colleagues, who, who's been here a number of years now, when he first came, he was a director of nursing within his country, running national programmes. And when he came to England, he was... Um, employed as a band two. And, you know, to say it, it just doesn't make sense when you've got a depth and breadth of experience that, you know, you can, you can educate and train people, they can culturally adapt in a, in a, a fairly decent space of time, and then they are flying. And Felicia, you um, talked about, you know, the, the Royal College of Nursing potentially having a role to play here in how we work with perhaps some of those diaspora nursing groups. What what do you think we need to do as a profession and as the Royal College of Nursing to make real change? I think, I mean, some of that work has already started, um, to be honest. Mm. Some of that work has started um, from the RCN and other organisations, for example, NHS England and NHS Improvement and other union bodies. So that has started. So what we have at the moment is we have several steering groups which are focused around pastoral care that are focused on supporting um, diaspora nursing with referee organisations. We have the small grants application process jointly run by NHS England and Florence Nightingale Foundation. And we have obviously the International Committee at the Royal College of Nursing. Mm. And I've always said that that space needs to be fully utilised. And one of the key things is ensuring that there's real open and close dialogue with the diaspora organisations. We have about 26 now. Mm. So there should be regular um, forums and discussion points with them, which we've started. We shouldn't um, neglect the diaspora nurses that are already here. Okay, so how do we actually utilize that talent of nurses that have assimilated and already here doing some marvelous work and have managed to uh, climb up that ladder? So there are some key things, pastoral care, that, that is absolutely essential to everything that we do. I think this whole cultural adaptation piece is really important. So we, you know, that we need to make sure that when some when an international nurse comes in the country, there is a guide 
So whatever country you come from, there's a guide about how to live within Britain. If you look at some of the guides, the guides are around citizenship. They're not bespoke to healthcare professionals. They're not bespoke to nurses and midwives. How do we ensure that the opportunities for education and training are afforded to not just UK nurses, but also international nurses? How do we, how do we track that? You know, where's the evidence to show that, you know, that the opportunities are equitable. We don't measure, measure that and we need to do that. How do we involve then also diaspora organisations in policy setting? So things like, you know, the review of the English language testing, the NMC went to council was a couple of weeks ago now. So they've agreed to revise that. So how do we, how do we ensure that, for example, if the RCN is, is producing a, a statement in response to that, or a statement to the consultation, how do you engage the international nursing and midwifery communities and the diaspora communities in that response that comes from a lived experience? You know, we need to hear those stories and we also need to see and um, understand how the unions play a part in protecting and safeguarding and, and how they intervene. And we should be able to show, we should be able to, to, to say, say that and report on those stories so that we have good guidance uh, for not just employers, but those unscrupulous practices. In this discussion today, we've talked about talent management and, you know, the lack of acknowledgement of prior experience and learning. Once again, the RCN has an important part to play to perhaps lobby uh, certain um, governments, lobby certain authorities around we should be doing this in terms of recognition of prior experiential learning. I think one of the key things about, you know, who are these international nurses? What happens six months, a year on? Some case studies, you know, this is what good looks like. This is what, you know, when equal opportunities have been really enacted, this is the kind of nurse practitioner that you have at the end of, um, you know, at the end of their of their of their career journey or the beginning of their career journey. So those are those are the some of the things. But if you ask a diaspora organisation, health and wellbeing is absolutely pivotal, and they are very um, concerned around this career progression. Mm. Thank you, and and Charlotte. I'm not sure I can add much more to that because Felicia articulated that so beautifully and passionately, and he's completely right. This needs to come from our international nurses and the diaspora networks that we have and it needs to be beyond listening we, we've done a lot of listening we need to see action now you know people have put forward suggestions ideas and solutions we need to put our money where our mouth is now and start acting on it and I think the RCN has a very important position to play on that. So Rachel what I wanted to say is some things that we can do they're quick they're quick wins we call them and we have to be careful that, you know, solutions and some actions that are fairly straightforward, obviously we risk assess them, we do, we do the equality impact assessments, and then we get on and we deliver on them and, you know, not keep on dragging our feet. You know, let's just get on and deliver some of these actions that can make a really uh, real significant improvements to the lived experience of these staff coming over. It's been a really brilliant conversation to, to hear from, from both of our guests. We have sadly reached the end of the podcast, but we'll be back soon. And we'd love to know what you'd like us to talk about. So tell us what you're interested in or concerned about in the world of nursing by tweeting us at the RCN with the hashtag Nursing Matters. But for this week, thank you to our special guests, 
Charlotte Collins. Uh, Charlotte, thank you. Thank you very much for having me here today. It's been brilliant. And Felicia, thank you for joining us. Thank you, everybody. It's been a privilege to be here. And thanks to my co-host, Tim Grace. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure, everyone. So remember to follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've got time, we'd love a positive review on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to spread the word about Nursing Matters. So thanks for listening. Stay safe. And we'll see you next time.